Welcome to the Real Talk Education Podcast, where we dive into the real topics facing real teachers, leaders, and students with your host, Marlena Gross, EEI champion, national ed thought leader, and founder of EduGladiators. Each week, we will discuss the topics that might be keeping you up at night as an educator or parent. This is not an echo chamber podcast. We will unapologetically examine the real challenges in education, plus provide insights and tips to help you navigate all the things, including curriculum, leadership, DEI, student engagement, advocacy, misinformation, and more. Pop in your earbuds or crank up your speaker because it's time to have some real talk about today's topic. Hi friends, this is Marlena Gross, your host for Real Talk Education. And today we're going to talk about the elephant in the room, or for some of you listeners, maybe it's the boardroom. And that elephant is called misinformation. We'll also talk about three top strategies or tips to help fight against misinformation about our schools, our students, and curriculum. And also, this particular podcast episode corresponds to the EduGladiators Twitter chat for October 22nd, which is all about debunking misinformation. And of course, that aligns perfectly to our October theme of unapologetic DEI. So this is a packed, packed episode. Grab your pen or pencil or whatever you like to write with because we're about to get started. So let's just level set on a couple of things. This is not a political podcast, but education in the U.S. has always been political, like literally since the beginning of our country and when we started public education, it has always been political. Also, we just need to acknowledge that uh, our government has a, a history of struggling with telling the full truth of its history and its actions. And some of you listening might even think that this dilution of truth and accountability, particularly in the news, started with our past president who introduced phrases like fake news to the public discourse. Well, this strategy of spreading misinformation is actually not new at all. There has always been playbooks, if you will, of how to disrupt the truth and to double down on the narrative that in the United States benefits primarily majority culture, which is our white Americans. So with the digital revolution of social media, the message and reach of what would have normally been considered fringe or extreme groups, it's grown tenfold um, because these groups are leveraging the echo chamber nature of social media algorithms paired with effective marketing strategies to spread narratives that target minority groups, including individuals of the BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus communities. So what does this mean for schools? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it means for schools. It means book bans. It means anti-CRT policies. It means anti-trans or gay policies and laws. And that's really just to name a few. In order to effectively fight back against misinformation that is probably overwhelming 
principals and district communication staff where you are, you have to understand a few basic marketing principles at play here, as well as who is actually behind the scenes in these different attacks or campaigns. So let's start with, as I like to call it, the man behind the curtain for all of my Wizard of Oz fans that would be familiar to you. So let's start with who's behind all of this. Last week, uh, or last month, I should say, Ed Week released a couple of articles around misinformation and named the organizations behind the book ban movement in particular that's happening in uh, K-12 schools. More than 50 right-wing activist organizations and Republican lawmakers are putting pressure on districts to ban books about and by people of color, as well as people that identify with our LGBTQIA communities. So according to this Ed Week article, and they've written a couple, but in this particular one, Moms of Liberty, a right-wing parent group, is behind at least 50% of the book bans in K-12 right now. And they're receiving, or they received their first um, national attention for challenging a book, or books about Ruby Bridges in Williamson County, Tennessee. So for those of you that um, know me, I lived in Nashville for uh, almost 12 years, and that's actually where I was uh, in leadership in Williamson County. So this whole situation is problematic on so many levels because um, this happened in the district that had different leadership at the time than what it is now, but this happened in a district that I literally gave my heart and soul to and in a district that because of not just my actions, but others that were committed and fearless in standing up for kids, my own kids went to uh, Williamson County schools um, before uh, before two of them went to private school for middle and high school. Not only is it problematic because of that connection for me personally, but also because I'm from Louisiana go Tigers, go Jags. And I know very well how racist and discriminatory uh, the history of my home state is and what, what a game changer that was for Ruby Bridges to be the first black child to uh, integrate into schools in New Orleans. And she was only six years old at the times at the time. So when, when she did that, when she, went to her elementary school, her new elementary school in New Orleans back in 1960, I believe. She faced an angry mob of white adults threatening her daily as she entered her elementary school. And the anger towards Ruby Bridges was so visceral that she actually had to be escorted to and from school by federal marshals. This is our history. And if we do not learn from our past, we will repeat it. And that actually describes where we are right now in our current situation. So the Daughters of the Confederacy were the first major female group to try to influence the narrative of the South, of slavery, and the Civil War. And they even had a written handbook to control what students learned and what teachers taught in the South. And that handbook actually is public record, so you could Google and find that. 
but they were the first group to do this. So we haven't learned from our history because the Daughters of Confederacy um, literally rewrote the history books and silencing so many of those stories uh, of perseverance, among other things, particularly of uh, former enslaved people, black people. But also this group here, uh, the Daughters of, or the Moms of Liberty, they already have a playbook that is very similar to the one ones from the Daughters of the Confederacy. So that's a podcast episode for a whole nother time about how the Daughters of Confederacy literally won the war of textbooks and why our textbooks are whitewashed even to this day. But I wanted to just bring this up because again, this has happened before. We have not learned from our past because we haven't taught that part of the past. So let's wrap up the book banning strategy. So the book banning strategy is a actual playbook. It is written down. It is in digital format and many different organizations, many of those 50 organizations. And the goal of the book banning strategy is to challenge 10 or 20 or 50 books at a time and claim that schools are teaching either CRT or um, they're teaching books that contain sexually explicit materials that's inappropriate for students. Um, and the books selected in these book ban campaigns disproportionately represent the voices and experiences of traditionally marginalized and underrepresented communities, aka our black and brown authors in our characters, our stories, as well as our LGBTQIA+. So what's interesting, though, is that according to the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom, most books that actually deal with sexual themes in our schools, they're about straight or white characters, and they have not been challenged. So... There's so much here to unpack, and we will, throughout this podcast of Real Talk Education, unpack many of these things. But I just wanted to bring that as a very specific example of who the man is behind the curtain, or in this case, the woman, and how they are organizing and have organized. And maybe you have experienced this either directly or indirectly in your school or district. Now, Another podcast that will be upcoming is around the 200 plus state laws that are currently in process and some have even even passed that discriminate against our trans community and their families. But again, we'll talk about that in an upcoming episode on how best to support our students, our staff that identify that way, as well as the families. Um, so I won't go into depth, but I just wanted to bring out here are some key areas that I know you're probably getting emails or calls or maybe um, maybe uh, at board meetings, um, it's a conversation at board meetings about these topics. So it's important to understand who's behind all of it, right, as much as possible, because then once you understand that, you'll, you're better equipped to, to, to message how you need to message, which we'll go over next, as well as understanding when you respond at all, because you don't have to respond to everything. And we're going to get into that um, right now. So here's a little marketing one-on-one -on -one messaging. And I do love talking about, of course, all things marketing um, and sales. And 
I have to give um, I have to give my ex uh, credit for that because that's what he does. And so I was able to watch him and he's really, really good at what he does when it comes to marketing. And so I learned so much about, um, messaging and even continued my learning about it, uh, how it applies to schools. So before we share the strategies to fight against misinformation, it's important that you understand some basic marketing messaging concepts, uh, and one in particular that is being used by uh, these groups like the Moms of Liberty and others, and even uh, Congress people. And that concept is called moral outrage, moral outrage. So according to the American Psychological Association, as well as several studies conducted by some of our top universities, uh, with Yale University taking the lead out of the research colleges, moral outrage is a key component of the spread of misinformation online, um, especially across social media. Some of you might be wondering, what is moral outrage, Marlena? Well, moral outrage is typically defined as anger toward a perceived moral violation. So what distinguishes moral outrage from, say, other forms of anger, like if you're just annoyed or maybe um, someone said something that you felt insulted, it's different from that type of anger because it involves a uh, specifically moral dimension that's either a personal moral standard or a perceived violator of that standard, plus intense feelings of disgust. So while there's forms of angers that are pure, like, you know, um, being angry because someone said a, a rude comment Moral outrage is best described as an emotional cocktail blending two intensely negative emotional experiences. So let's just unpack this. And I'm geeking out again a little bit because my undergrad's in psychology and this this was always fascinating to me then. And sales, just as a side note, sales is just psychology. It's a form of psychology. So that's why these two intersect. But um, when given the choice, right, people seem to prefer pleasant to unpleasant experiences, duh, right, except for moral outrage experiences, okay? I want to say that one more time. When given the choice, we like pleasant things to happen and to experience, not unpleasant things, except for moral outrage experiences. So psychologists have long argued that people seem uniquely calibrated to remember things that make us actually feel bad. And then we base our decisions as as an individual on those negative emotions. Just let that sit there for a second. So outrage, particularly on social media, seems like an extension of that, right? So to return to the question, why moral outrage? Like, why is that so appealing to people when research is very, very clear that people like to experience pleasant, happy things, not unpleasant things? So what makes moral outrage the exception? Well, recent research even uh, continues to confirm and affirm that psychology highlights the role that that outrage, just the outrage part, plays in satisfying specific psychological needs that actually can ultimately help individuals cope with whatever they're going through. So in other words, people may be able to affirm their value 
their moral value by feeling outraged over a perceived injustice. So the benefits of moral outrage for a person may be even more far-reaching because for some people, the experience of outrage over a specific moral violation actually can enhance their sense of meaning as a whole in their life. And that explains what I like to call the herd mentality or no one likes to sit alone at the lunchroom table, right? So people like to be a part of something bigger than they are. It helps, it helps people, it helps a lot of people. I won't say all, but it helps a lot of people find value, find their worth or their purpose. And so that's just a little bit of the psychology um, behind it of moral outrage because According to psychologist uh, Jay Van Babel, social media posts containing moral outrage language had a significant increase in engagement, um, including likes, retweets, shares, you know, whatever social media platform that a person that had moral outrage in their post, whatever platform they were using. And that significant increase in engagement was on average 15 to 20% for each moral, emotional word used. So words that appeal to our um, morality, that actually breaks through the noise of social media. And if you understand social media, it can become an echo chamber. So people start reacting, they start sharing um, on social media, and um, if they're they're engaging in these uh, posts that have moral outrage, And it gives them a sense of belonging and value. And that is um, not just interesting, that can be dangerous, actually, if that's where people are finding their worth. But it's important to understand moral outrage because you can flip that. You can flip how moral outrage is being used and use it in your responses to some of the things that I know you're having to deal with. So Let's jump right into the three strategies um, to fight misinformation. The first one, it sounds simple, but it is so hard for so many people. The first strategy is you have to take a clear stand against censorship, um, against discrimination, or um, are not are against discrimination of BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus. Uh, students and staff, as well as taking a stand that, yes, we're, we all have to teach comprehensive sex education. Um, almost all states have to do that. You might be in one that doesn't, but majority of states, you have to teach that. So as a district and or a school, depending on you know where you are, you just have to take a stand about it. Like, it's just not up for debate. Like, we are not going to censor and remove books. We're not going to discriminate because that's against the law as well, against uh, people because of how they look or how they identify. And um, we're gonna teach sex ed. And those are just like the big three, right? You have to take a stand. Now that stand could look differently depending on where you are. Um, And I would definitely make sure as you're taking your stand that um, whatever uh, role you might serve in your school or in your district, that you absolutely have your school board along with you. Um, as well. The second strategy 
which is actually my favorite. And this just speaks to my middle school teacher heart right here is you have to create, create opportunities to address current misinformation on social media or, um, or in a district, if you send out a district newsletter or a school newsletter to, to your parents or to staff, I would say send it to both because one of the things about misinformation, we as educators assume that everybody else loves each kid equally and that is not true. So it's important that when you take that stand, however you decide to communicate that, that goes to all staff. Um, when you're creating opportunities to address current misinformation, that that goes out to all staff as well as to parents. And so when you're creating those opportunities, um, an example or two examples that I would give is, um, and we did this, we actually did this in Williamson County when I was there, um, the rumor mill. So in our newsletter to, that the district was sent to all of our families, they had a section called the rumor mill. And so it was at the top of the newsletter, it was a digital newsletter, but it was at the top and we knew people were going to read that. It was like the most one of the most popular features of the newsletter. And so um, our communications team would pick like two, um, sometimes three, but no more than three rumors and put it in that section, you know, and they would put what people were saying, the misinformation or misguided. And then uh, the team would answer it. So maybe you want to put the rumor mill or something similar in your newsletter, your digital newsletter to your staff or to your families. So that's one. If you want to use social media as a way, which is a wonderful way, if you want to use social media as a way to um, debunk the misinformation, one of my favorite hashtags that I've helped uh, districts use is hashtag MythBuster Monday. So every Monday, um, you can choose a, a myth, right? A misinformation, and you can do a whole social media post on all your channels um, on that Monday. And you can even batch create your content by taking that um, Myth uh, Buster Monday uh, content and share more about it. Um, of debunking that myth each uh, day of the week. And then you start with your new uh, myth, myth Buster Monday topic on the following Monday. So that's a great one. But probably my favorite and the third and last one is use the Edu Gladiators three-step messaging response framework. So when you're even replying to say, if you have the rumor mill in your newsletter or something similar, or you do Myth Buster Monday, which you're already like saying what the myth is and here's the real deal about it, I would encourage you to use our uh, three-step messaging response framework. And I'll, I'll uh, make sure that that's put in the show notes as well with the link. But the three parts of the messaging framework and I'll give you an actual example. So get your pencil ready, get your pen ready. You might have to pause and rewind and listen again. But the three parts are shared value is part one of your response. That's the first part. Identifying and naming the challenges and threats to that shared uh, value. And then lastly, very business-like, very marketing-like, you always end with a call to action or a CTA is often referred to as that. So your shared value articulates like what is that vision um, 
and maybe even a little background before it, but what is that vision that you uh, feel will likely resonate with that particular stakeholder group, right? And so you can actually use the moral outrage, uh, emotional words in describing your shared value. The second piece in the cha- identifying the challenges or threats to that shared uh, value you absolutely need to use the moral outrage uh, trigger words to name the challenges or threats to that shared value. And then lastly, call to action, um, also known as CTA. You're simply addressing solutions to the challenge or challenges or threats by explicitly asking stakeholders to connect and join together with you, to lock arms with you. So here's an example. So using the three-step messaging response, I don't know if you've received this question before, but I've received it several times and I've uh, only been with uh, my current district, um, not years and years. So here's the question. Is critical race theory currently being taught in K-12 schools? I just want to point out that question is in those playbooks of these different organizations. They actually give them templates, templated emails, templated questions to ask at school board meetings or to email people to send in snail mail. So this is one that is definitely in there. So that's why I chose it. And it, it was a popular one for sure in the spring. Um, now the target of uh, discrimination from these groups has shifted uh, more to our trans kids. But The question, is critical race theory currently being taught in K-12 schools? So using the three-step framework, the messaging response framework, here's how I would answer something along the lines of um, um, saying what critical race theory is. So critical race theory originated um, in law school and is taught in law school at the college level. In K-12, we teach the full history of our country and we help our students recognize and have robust classroom conversations and debate about structural inequalities. And then here is the specific shared value. And that's a good thing because we must support our teachers' freedom to teach the truth about accurate history. So that that had some moral outrage words in there. So that was the shared value because we must support our teachers' freedom to teach the truth about our accurate history. So there are many um, politicians and groups in many states, including ours, attempting to ban teachers from discussing concepts such as racism in our public schools, recalling the fanatical purges of the McCarthy era. So that is identifying the threat, the threat to not teaching about racism. And I'll read that part one more time. There are many politicians and groups in many states, including ours. So a little little shade there, but you're acknowledging that, hey, we have this in our state and you're not saying outright that it's probably you're probably one of those people. But uh, attempting to ban teachers from discussing concepts such as racism in our public schools and really recalling the fanatical purges of the McCarthy era. So if you don't know what the McCarthy era is, look it up. And then the last part. Teaching about systemic racism and sexism provides a bridge to unite us. We must, and here's the call to action, we must come together. So I'm asking explicitly, like, hey, 
I need I need to lock arms with you. You need to lock arms with us here at the school. We must come together to continue the project of healing that divides us and unite around our vision for a robust multicultural society that acknowledges systemic racism and the moral imperative to eliminate it. So that was a call to action, again, draped in moral outrage language. So basically, especially with the last line there, um, with the moral imperative to eliminate it, if you don't think it's morally wrong to eliminate systemic racism, it's like really just calling you out for just being just not a good human. So that is an example, um, what, four sentences of how to respond to that question. I will say less is best. Uh, Because remember, knowing who the man and our AKA woman is behind the curtain, they're not trying to reach consensus. They're not trying to reach a compromise. They're wanting what they're wanting and they're following a very detailed playbook how to get there. So you want to make sure that you do not leave any openings for any foolishness, as I like to say. All right. So, you know, here's the deal. Every student, every student deserves to have edgy gladiators in their corner, especially when our most vulnerable students are constantly under attack by misinformation and their experiences are literally being minimized with the flagrant racism and discrimination by these organized groups of adults that are nostalgic to return to ignorance. We cannot be afraid to stand up for the truth and debunk the misinformation while also teaching and modeling for our students how to be critical thinkers of the information that they receive. So I love this quote by Ruby Bridges, and I'll close with this. Don't follow the path. Go where there is no path and begin the trail. When you start a new trail equipped with courage, strength, and conviction, the only thing that can stop you is you. That's by Ruby Bridges. Did this episode resonate with you? If so, we would love for you to share this podcast, even take a screenshot of the episode and uh, tag us on social media uh, at Edge Gladiators on any of your social media platforms and be sure to subscribe to Real Talk Education and never miss an episode. Uh, We drop them every Tuesday, so you don't want to miss it. And you can even catch up on any past episodes. Lastly, I invite you to the Twitter arena each Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Central Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, as we continue to break down our October theme of unapologetic DEI. I hope to see you in the Twitter arena on Saturday, and I hope to see you back here next week for the new episode of Real Talk Education. 